Blue Wire. Touchdown pass, 5-4-0 in the 5-0-4. Jackson takes it himself, look at him dart back and forth. Oh, he broke his ankle. Watson stays on his feet, throws on the run, touchdown. Watson, a magician. Mahomes winds it up wide open. Welcome to the My Sports Update Football Podcast. I am your host, Ari Mayrov. We continue to deal with the various things going on in the world. And usually in the NFL, when the month of June rolls around, there is not much to talk about. But that is not the case this year. The things we are seeing off the field is incredible. The movement players are trying to create with their platforms is inspiring. The video we saw put together last week by some of the high-profile players in the league was super powerful. And as a result, Roger Goodell spoke out and admitted that the NFL was wrong for not listening to its players. The words Black Lives Matter came out of his mouth and we are seeing change. And it will be interesting to see what the NFL and what players do in the coming weeks and then months as we near the NFL season. On this week's episode of the podcast, we have another special guest with ESPN's Damian Woody joining the show. Woody has been very outspoken about all that has happened over the last couple of weeks, and it was good to have him on and have a discussion about all of that. We also talked about his NFL career. He was there for the start of the Bill Belichick and Tom Brady dynasty. He was there for the Tuck Rule game. He was with the Jets when they had Brett Favre. He was with the Jets when they had those two teams that went to back-to-back AFC Championship games with Rex Ryan and Mark Sanchez. Just a really great conversation with him. Before we go to Damien, a quick word from our sponsor, BetOnline.ag. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, BetOnline.ag. Sports is slowly making its way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day every day live on their website if you want something other than sports they also have hundreds of casino games poker tournaments and prop bets for you to check out visit betonline.ag and use the promo code bluewire b-l-u-e-w-i-r-e for a free welcome bonus betonline your online wagering experts So now, here it is, my discussion with ESPN's Damian Woody as we talked some current events, his NFL career, he had some great stories, how he got into the media, and much more. Joining me now here on the My Sports Update Football Podcast, he played in the NFL for 12 seasons, won two Super Bowls, and he's now been at ESPN for almost 10 years as an NFL analyst. It is Damian Woody. Damian, what's going on? How are you? I'm well, my man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I appreciate you coming on here this week. And, you know, I reached out to you to come on this podcast two weeks ago, and that was before all these protests started. And my original plan was to talk about your career and to talk some football. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that. But 
as much as we all love football, it really isn't the focal point of what's going on in the world right now. We are literally living in history, and I believe the more we talk about what's happening, the more we speak out, the more we educate ourselves, the better society will become. So I want to start by asking you just what have been your overall thoughts on what happened and the response it has been getting over the last two weeks from all different types of people. Well, it's really been eye-opening, and you know, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with my uh, with my dad, you know, who lived through the civil rights movement, and you know, in the '60s, and you know, it's not it's similar to 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 that movement, but even a bigger coalition. I think that's really the beautiful thing about this about this you know transformational time that we're in right now. It's just this coalition of people: black, white, you know, Jewish you know, brown, mm-hmm. you know, everyone coming together for, I think, for a common cause and to try to create what I call a more perfect union. And, and uh, you know, I've always said that change is uncomfortable. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now in our country. There's a lot of people that are uncomfortable, but, you know, I'm hopeful because it seems like a, there's a lot of people that are receptive and want to listen and listen to the plights of a lot of, you know, African-Americans who, who've experienced a lot racism on on a lot of different levels and I think if we can continue to listen and learn then I think we can continue to evolve as a society and become an even better society. Yeah for sure and I don't really know if I should say I was surprised but before all this happened this was always the one topic that many people ran away from for so long but for this situation many people are speaking up like this was always the big elephant in the room that no one wanted to talk about. And now so many people who didn't speak up previously are speaking up now. What has changed that so many people are talking and listening and speaking up? Well, I think, listen, this has been simmering for a long time, you know, because uh, quite honestly, our country was, was built on the, on the, on the, on the back, on the back of, of, you know, what slavery, racism. So like you said, it's always been the elephant in the room and a lot of people didn't want to talk about it, but when you have different incidences that, that, you know, bubble to the surface or gets recorded and for the public to see, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a match, you know, lit to a, to gasoline. And I think that's what happened with this whole George Floyd situation where the public finally got to see um, just what a horrific incident, what that was. And, and quite honestly, what a lot of, uh, you know, African-Americans go through in society um, and it sparked outrage and, it actually opened the door for some really honest conversation, which which I am very proud of. Yeah, it's long overdue, and I'm also proud to see it. And it's been really inspiring to me to see just the amount of people coming in and speaking up and trying to make a difference. I've never seen anything like it in my life. My dad told me the same thing. But the protests, they're not going to go on forever. And I think it was, it was Saquon Barkley of the Giants who tweeted that, once all these protests are over, we need everyone to come together and actually implement all the messages that we've been talking about. Are you worried that might not happen? Like, how do we keep that energy going and really put an end to this major issue? Well, I think what, you know, I think you're exactly right. And that's one of the things that, I, that I've talked to many people about is, you know, the protests are going to die down. You know, the fires are going to, you know, going to, are going to go out on a lot of these, you know, incidences around the country. What then? And I think, you know, for me, the energy has to keep going. You can't allow people to, you know, dictate the message, overtake the message. You got to keep, you know, what I call, um, you know, just being vocal about this. Um, Because if we want to continue evolving, 
you can't you can't become quiet. You can't allow these things to go back to the status quo. And that's why I think this this movement is actually different because what you're seeing is a lot of young people. Um, you know, I have you know I have seven kids myself, mm -hmm. and you know I have you know I have two adults in my house, uh, and the, the energy and the passion that they talk about this issue to me, that's what I'm so inspired about. So I think th the young people are gonna keep this movement going. And as long as they're doing, I think people are gonna join in and continue to bring the message to the masses. Yeah, and you mentioned that you have seven children. And I've heard you mention on other shows that you have been in incidents with the police. You've been confronted by them in situations which a person like me would not. Could you like share a story and what you had to tell your children after such a thing happened? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the, you know, where I live at now, I, we had just bought this house, um, you know, in New Jersey and I was coming home from ESPN. It was about, it was about like seven, 7 PM. Um, and I was right outside. Uh, I, actually I was crossing right over into the town that I live in now and I got pulled over and there was no reason that I got pulled over um, because I wasn't speeding or anything like that. And, and the cop comes up and, you know, he asked me where I'm, you know, where I'm going, you know, I give him my license and all that type of stuff. He asked me where I'm going. I'm like, I'm going home. You know, I, you know, I live here. And he's like, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm on television. He was like, you know, you know, you drive a nice, you know, you drive a nice car. Um, and then he asked me again, why am I here? And I, to me, that like, it, like I was almost shocked that he said that. And by the by the time he said that, there were two other cop cars that that had arrived on the scene. And I'm just like, sir, my address is on my license. I, we just moved here in the town. And um, and then he went back and uh, to his car and he checked. Um, I guess he had to check everything out and make sure I didn't have any you know, warrants or whatever the case may be. And the other cops were standing right there. And, you know, after 20 minutes, you know, I was, they finally let me go. But I just, you know, that kind of shook me. It's just like, people have this perception of you've quote unquote made it. So how could this happen to you? But it doesn't matter. You know, I've, I, you know, I've told this to many, you know, white folks and um, that it doesn't matter your status. This has happened to so many black people. I mean, you could ask the same question to Lewis Riddick, Booger McFarlane, Marcus Spears. You know, they'll all have some type of similar experience that I just told you. And those are the things that, you know, that those are forces that we're trying to work against, man. So, um, you know, I just wanted to share it to just give people insight into what it's like to be black in America. Right. So that, that type of sto story would not happen to me, let's just say. Let's just say I'm driving. I mean, I don't, even if I see a cop car behind me, I'm not getting worried that something like that could happen to me. What exactly goes through your mind once you get back home in such a situation? Because now, as you said, you have children at home, you have your wife at home. Like, what type of, do you have to tell them this? How do you explain it to them? Well, you know, for me, I, once, I, once I pulled up into my garage, I took like 20 minutes to kind of decompress because I was like, I was shook. Honestly, I was shook because a lot of a lot of black folks get nervous when you when the police you know when the police stops you and all those type of things because you never know what could happen um, during during that that moment in time. And you know, I so I sat in my garage, twenty minutes, decompressed, just kind of gathered my thoughts. 
And, um, you know, I went in, I went in the house, uh, you know, I kissed my kids, you know, good night. And then, uh, you know, and then I saw my wife and then we talked, you know, that night about everything that happened. And, um, you know, my wife, she's just wonderful anyway, always give me words of, you know, encouragement, all those type of things. But that's, just, again, that's just a situation that it's almost universal across the board when it comes to, you know, African-Americans. So that type of a story is a story that maybe people just don't understand goes on with people like you. And when I was recording last week, Saints quarterback Drew Brees was arguably the most liked person in the NFL. Then he made his comments. It exploded. His own teammates were calling him out. He had to apologize not once but twice and even put out a letter to the president. If you were a part of that team, what would be your thoughts on Drew Brees right now? Because... You know, clearly what he was saying, he just doesn't, he didn't understand exactly what people like you are trying to say. Well, listen, I think, you know, when it first happened initially, my, my, my thought process is like, was like, okay, Drew, you're 41 years old. When, when Colin Kaepernick, you know, started the protest, that was what, like three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. And there's been countless stories done on Colin Kaepernick, you know, why he was protesting, how, you know, how he, how it came about that he started taking a knee as opposed to sitting. So this information was readily available. So the first thing that popped in my head was, you know, are you ignoring it? Are you complicit in this whole, in the bigger picture? What's the deal? Because the information is out there. It's been said multiple times on multiple different platforms. So why are you saying this? And so for me, you know, if I was a teammate, you know, I don't know if I would have necessarily just took to whatever my social media platform and just blast them like that. Mm -hmm. I would have just rather just, you know what, let me reach out to him and, uh, and talk to him and get, and get a sense of where, you know, where, what his mindset is, where he's coming from, because as a teammate um, and, and the guy who played, you know, professional sports, you always like to try to keep the locker room tight, keep the locker room together. You don't want your quote unquote dirty laundry out in the media for everywhere for everyone to run away with. So that would have been my approach if, if I was a teammate. Yeah, and if you ask anyone in the NFL, that Saints locker room is one of the strongest when it comes to togetherness. And it looks like they are starting to gel it back together. And you mentioned Colin Kaepernick. He did his protest. It was four years ago. If you would have asked me two or three weeks ago about him being back in the NFL, I would have told you there's no chance whatsoever. But after all that's gone on, Roger Goodell coming out and saying we were wrong, which I was shocked to see him do. Do you think a team steps up and maybe brings him back in the league? Well, I would say the chances of that happening are, are a lot stronger now. But the question is, if you're Colin Kaepernick, do you really want to come back under these circumstances? Because this might be a situation where what are the real intentions of why you want to bring me back? Is it a PR move because of the the, the – the pressure that's been building um, from the from the public surrounding this whole uh, incident uh, situation, um, I think that's something that Colin Kaepernick will have to think about if this opportunity arises. Am I being used as a pawn, or is this something genuine that the National Football League really wants to do? It's interesting because there are just so many players in the league who are calling out the NFL to try to make that happen. And I'm starting to think that there might be a chance because, again, I told you two or three weeks ago, I said there's no chance whatsoever. Now I'm starting to think maybe there is a chance. By the way, what did you think of Roger Goodell's remarks? Because, like, the first statement for me was, like, a waste of time. But the Goodell video version was strong. I mean, I hated the fact that it came out on a Friday, on a Friday afternoon. 
But um, everything else about it was pretty strong, I thought. How about you? Well, you know, first of all, you know, the, the one thing I tweeted when I saw the video, I'm like, this is a Friday news dump. Yeah, you know, a lot, of, a lot of, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. It was a Friday news dump, but because it came from the NFL, it was, a, I mean, that was literally a bombshell for the NFL to admit we were wrong on this issue. Think about that. When does the NFL actually admit that they were wrong on anything? It's almost it never happened. It's almost never happened. And the NFL is such a huge entity that even the fact that they dropped it on a Friday afternoon, it was, I mean, it's still, it's still a, a, a huge news story. So listen, I commend Roger Goodell for, you know, for that video. Uh, a couple thoughts. One, he didn't mention Colin Kaepernick's name. Mm -hmm. um, which I thought that was a, you know, a significant omission in that, in that video statement. Now that might have to do with the whole lawsuit and all those type of things. So, you know, I'll leave it, I'll leave that at, at that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the bigger thing with really forced NFL's hand, that video by the players, uh -huh. specifically, specifically Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not discrediting any of the other players in that video because there are some mega stars in that video. But face the, the fact NFL. that you have the – exactly. When you have the face of the NFL, a quarterback who's going to be the face of the NFL for a long time, that is, that is strong. That is really strong. So I guarantee you at Park Avenue at the NFL front office, when that video dropped, literally it was like DEFCON 1 in that building. I can tell you that right now because when you see Patrick Mahomes – Saquon Barkley, Odell Beckham Jr., Jamal Adams, you know, Michael Thomas, Mike Evans, all Deshaun these guys Watson, in this yeah. video, Deshaun Watson, all these guys in that video, oh, there's going to be action. And, um, and we saw that from the NFL. Yep, and I think there was an ESPN report yesterday that said once the NFL saw Patrick Mahomes in the video, that is when they realized they got to do something, and that is when Roger Goodell made the video, and it was published the very next day. And, you know, we mentioned the Friday news dump. I don't really know if everyone understands exactly what that means, but when you drop a news story on Friday afternoon, that is when all the sports TV shows are done for the week. So there's no more NFL Live. There's no more first take until Monday. So no one on TV is really going to be talking about that statement until Monday when all the sports shows are back. So that was the only thing that we really didn't like about it. But other than that, I was really impressed and shocked to see Roger Goodell say what he said. I do want to transition now to football and to your career because you had an amazing career. You were a first-round pick, a pro bowler. You got two Super Bowl rings. Let's start from those Patriot days. You were a first-round pick by the New England Patriots, but it was not by Bill Belichick. It was by Pete Carroll. P was there for one year as the head coach. He was fired. And then in comes Bill Belichick. What was your first impression of Bill Belichick when you first got to talk to him or his first team meeting or whatever it was? Oh, man. So, you know, you know, I'm in my second year. Um, and really, I've relied on, on some of the older veterans in, in the locker room to kind of get a feel because Bill Belichick came from that Bill Parcells school of thinking, um, you know, just – mindset. So guys like Lawyer Malloy, Willie McGinnis, uh, Teddy Bruschi, you know, all those guys, I just leaned on them to kind of get a, get a sense of, okay, how is this thing going to go down? And they, everyone was like, buckle up, man, because this is <laughs> going to be no joke. And I remember, 
I remember our first training camp, the very first meeting the night before our first practice, Bill comes in and he walks in and he says, he says, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Don't ask for any breaks because there won't be any breaks. Put your head down. Let's go to work. And he walked out of the room and I'm thinking in my head, oh my gosh, what is about to happen? And it was literally the hardest training camp I've ever been a part of. Like guys were, veteran guys were retiring almost every night, <laughs> almost every night. But you know, but, but when new coaches come in, they want to set their culture. You know, they want to quote unquote, weed people out. And this is when you could actually hit at training camp. So um, it was, it was the toughest thing that, that I've ever gone through. Um, we went five and 11 that year, but it set the foundation for the Patriots dynasty. And I always tell people, I'm so glad I went through that because anything tough that I've, that I've gone through after that point, I always refer back to that training camp that year and said, and saying to myself, if I can get through that, I can get through, there's nothing else that anyone can throw my way that I can't get through. It's so interesting to hear that because of course, I don't really know what exactly you guys thought of Bill Belichick. Even like you guys won five and 11. Drew Bledsoe was the Patriots quarterback back then. Right. And I think he Correct. was the first hundred million dollar quarterback, right? Yes. Yes, so, he was. So he was the quarterback of the team and then he gets hurt against the jets and in comes this sixth round pick named Tom Brady. Did you like know anything about Tom? Did you have any expectations of what he's capable of doing? Like did, did you know anything about him? Well, listen, I, I, you know, I saw him, you know, I saw him play at Michigan and, you know, Tom was a pretty good quarterback at, at Michigan. It seemed like he got a raw deal with Drew Henson also being like this, this, the star quarterback who also, you know, uh, you know, played for the Yankees or whatever. So yeah. a lot of people feel like he got a raw deal at Michigan. Um, but when Tom came in, Tom was a fourth, he was the fourth string quarterback, you know, yeah. behind Drew Bledsoe, John Freeze, and Michael Bishop. But the thing that you saw about Tom is he had command of the huddle. I always say that's, that's just so important. When you're talking about being leader, leader, a leader of men, you've got to be able to command the huddle. That's the one thing that really jumped out about Tom. And then you just saw him methodically jump up the depth chart, you know, surpassing Michael Bishop, surpassing John Freeze. And then he was Drew Bledsoe's backup. And then once that moment happened with Mo Lewis and, and, and Drew Bledsoe with a game, the game against the, uh, the, the Jets, Really? That's when, the, that's when the dynasty started. That's when the dynasty started. But no one could foresee Tom having that type of a career. But of course, yeah. I think the, um, I, but I think the intangibles were always, were always there. And he just took advantage of it. You know what's amazing to me? And I feel like it doesn't get that much attention. It's the fact that Bill Belichick came over from the Jets after that whole mess. And Tom Brady came in after Drew Bledsoe got hurt by the Jets. If anything, like the Jets kind of started this whole dynasty and no one really gives that much attention to it. Oh, oh, absolutely. Listen, I talk about it all the time. And any like diehard Jets fan, they say the same thing. Like we started this dynasty and, and obviously Jets fans are elated with the fact that Tom Brady has now moved on to the Tampa Bay Bucks. Um, but yeah, man, it's, I would say the Jets and, and the Patriots are forever linked you know, as, as um, you know, with two organizations, man, because, you know, obviously with the dynasty starting with, with you know, during that moment against the, against the Jets. And then a lot of, there's been a lot of players that played on both teams. Um, so it's kind of like cross-pollinated um, with, with players on both teams. So 
that rivalry will always be there, even though it's it's, it's lopsided with on, in the Patriots' favor right now. Yep, and I have a lot of Jets fa- fans who follow me, and they've never been excited as much as they are right now that Tom Brady's no longer there. I want to stick to where we were. Later that year, of course, you guys end up in the Super Bowl. That is when the dynasty starts. You win the whole thing. But before all that happened, there was, of course, the tuck rule game. And if you go back to look at the video, you were the closest Patriot to the ball. I was looking <laughs> at it this morning. And you saw the Raiders jump on the ball. What was the sidelines like during that period? Did you guys think the game was over? What was going on during that whole, you know, the whole 10 minutes, whatever it was? Oh, yeah. There, there were a lot of guys like, well, that's it. It's a wrap. This is, this is done. You nobody heard of the tuck rule. Nobody heard of the tuck rule. But exactly. what I remember, I, I was walking back to the sideline, and there st- all this chatter started happening. And then, you know, people start looking at Walt Anderson, and, like, Bill Belichick was, was saying things I couldn't exactly hear, but there was just a lot of chatter on the sideline. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, what's going on? Like, shouldn't this be, like, shouldn't this be easy? Turnover, boom, Raiders got the ball, game over. And then all of a sudden, you just saw Walt Anderson come out there and basically, you know, broke down the tuck rule right there in front of our eyes. And all I could, all I remember after that is the stadium, Foxborough Stadium, just went nuts. The Raiders sideline, I remember John Gruden's face being just like red as a red <laughs> apple, just everyone over there was just angry. And and we knew at that moment, we got them. We got them. Because they were so caught up in that emotion of that, you know, of that call that we knew there was no way we were going to lose that game. And obviously we went on to beat the Raiders in that wild card game and ultimately went on to win the Super Bowl that year. Yep. Adam Vinatieri makes one of the greatest kicks ever. And eventually you – Oh, my gosh. One of the, that kick, by the way, did you did you think that kick was going to go through? Just considering the snow that was going on. I mean, listen, I, 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 people don't understand. Like it was snowing sideways. First of all, the ground was had inches of snow on it. We were literally clearing out of space for yeah. Adam Vinatieri to try to kick the kick the ball. It was snowing sideways, and it, I believe it was like a forty-six yard field goal or whatever it was, and. Like and Adam, Adam, Adam Vinatieri was not Adam Vinatieri. He wasn't like considered like anything yet back then. No, not at that point. And you just saw, like, once he kicked it, you could barely see the football. And, I mean, he just nailed it. And I'm like, it, we're, we're winning. We're, this, this is <laughs> – it's over. Like, this is if, – if all of these things align, there's no way we're losing the, losing the game. So, it was one of the greatest – games in NFL history and and to say I was a part of it is unbelievable yeah but it's one of the most incredible playoff games ever one of the most historic games in NFL history and a game that will never be forgotten I do want to move on a little bit more further down in your career because you win that Super Bowl you win another Super Bowl the next year over Carolina and then you become a free agent. You sign with the Detroit Lions. I want to know, when you left New England, did you know or did you think that they could become what they eventually became? Did you think that they could become something so great like we've seen them do for the last 20 years? Well, listen, I think, you know, I knew the Patriots want to be really good, um, but who can imagine the type of success that the Patriots have had during that dynasty? I mean, it's almost unprecedented. I don't even know if we want to see that that run of success that the Patriots no. had in twenty in twenty years. I mean, you know, the, the the consecutive division titles, the 
the number of, uh, of Super Bowls that they've gone to, the number of Super Bowls that they've, that they've won. It's just it, the numbers are staggering. So no one could ever imagine the Patriots having that type of success. But, you know, I've always said Bill Belichick is the greatest coach, regardless of sport in, in history. Just brilliant, brilliant man. And that's really what makes this year so interesting because now it's Bill Belichick there without Tom Brady and we're all so curious to see what Bill Belichick could do without Brady there. We'll talk more about Bill and the Patriots later on, but I do want to ask you and move a little bit more further down to your Jets days because those days were just, those Jets teams were really, really fun. So you get there in 2008 as a free agent and that is the year they had Brett Favre. I remember that year so well. You guys were, I think it was 8-3 and three or 8-2. and two. You beat the Patriots. You beat the undefeated Titans. Things were looking so good and everything just collapsed. Brett Favre was playing hurt. He was injured apparently. If Favre does not get hurt that year, did you guys think you were the team to beat in 08? Because it definitely felt like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the fascinating thing, we trade for Brett Favre in, in training camp. I remember we were playing a preseason game against the Cleveland Browns in Cleveland. And all of a sudden, this bomb just dropped. Like, you just heard it. Do you it know you guys traded for – it was out of nowhere. And people, like, it, like someone I, – I can't remember who it was, but someone was like, do you know we just traded for Brett Favre? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what are you – what are you talking about? Like, dude, we just traded for Brett Favre. He's like, he's here right now. He just flew in. And I remember seeing him walk into the, the hotel, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, we just traded for Brett Favre. I'm like, this is crazy. And so fast forward, literally, we learned the whole offense, learned the West Coast. Instead of Brett learning our offense, he taught us the West Coast. So yeah. the first couple of games, we were just kind of adapting, finding our way. But once we got up to speed, we were – flying like we were we were really really good and um I mean we put together some really good performances and obviously it uh, culminated with the game in Foxborough we went on in the, on the road and beat the you know beat the Patriots who were really good and then the following week we went down to Nashville to play a 10-0 undefeated Tennessee Titans team and just destroyed them at that point in time we were the best team in the league we there was no there was no question about it. We felt like we were the best team in the league. And if Brett hadn't gotten hurt, we felt like we were going to the Super Bowl and going to win it. It's crazy because Jets fans always bring up that year because they truly believe that team was the team to beat. Because you guys not only you guys beat the good teams that year. As you said, Tennessee and New England, those teams are no jokes. You beat those two teams, everything collapses. Brett is gone. Mangini is gone. The next year... In comes Rex Ryan, in comes Mark Sanchez. I'm so curious to know because Rex is such an entertaining head coach. How entertaining was he to have him as the head coach? Oh, man. Rex was, you know, for me, you know, I was on the, like the back end of my career and, and I couldn't ask for a better coach than Rex Ryan at that point in my career because Rex, he never viewed himself as a head coach. He always viewed himself as, I'm just one of the guys, fellas. You know, he would always say, don't, look, don't refer to me as head coach. I'm just one of the guys. We're all in it together. And the things that Rex would say and how he would take care of his guys, how he would take care of his players, man, it was, it was the perfect situation for a veteran ball club. 
And uh, obviously we drafted Mark Sanchez, who's, you know, a high draft pick, young, didn't have a lot of college experience, but had a lot of potential. And Rex's whole thing is, look, we're going to ride on the backs of our defense and our offensive line. That's how we're going to win. He always say, rushing, you know, rushing attempts and completions and play really good defense. And guess what? Over the next two years, when, when I was with the Jets, that's what we did, and we rode it to back-to-back AFC championship games. Yep, and we had Mike Tannenbaum on this podcast a couple of months ago, and he talks about those teams so highly. I know you have two Super Bowl rings, but does it hurt that those two Jets teams were just so close? Those teams, those teams were just so fun to watch. I remember it so well, but they fell short. Do you still think about those teams today? Because I know Jets fans do, and what could have been? Oh, my gosh. Like, I always tell people the losses – you remember the losses more than the, than the big wins. And I love my two Super Bowls with New England, but those two AFC championship, championship game losses, they hurt me to my core because I, always, I felt like both, both times we were the better team. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just sad because, you know, when we were winning <laughs> those couple years, man, New York City was just so fun. Yep. Jet fans were just, man, there's nothing like when you're when, – there's nothing like winning and having the Jet fans behind you. That was just so exciting, so fun. And, I, you know, I always said, man, my 12-year career, my, my one regret is not being able to get a Super Bowl, bring a Super Bowl to New York City um, as, as a Jet. Yeah, listen, I'm from New York. I don't root for any team, but when the New York teams are doing well, like I'm locked in on it because when New York sports is actually doing well, the city goes nuts. And when the Giants won, it was amazing to see. When the Jets came so close, I mean, the city was just going crazy, hoping that it happens. And during those two playoff runs, the Jets, they had wins over Brady and the Patriots. They had over Peyton Manning and the Colts and Rivers and the Chargers. I think it was also the Bengals. I mean, that, those teams were just so good. It just came short. One more thing here on the Jets. You guys were on hard knocks in 2010. It's probably the best hard knocks I've ever seen. Is hard knocks really a distraction the way people make it out to be? Absolutely not. Like we had a black, we had a ball. Like the one, the great thing about like NFL films, they do, they're, they, they are such pros because they just blend in. They don't, you know, they not, they're not worrisome or cumbersome. Like they just blend in. They're not trying to be a distraction or whatever. Yet certainly you have certain obligations, you know, um, as far as players, but it was just fun. We were just being ourselves. It wasn't like we were trying to be something that we were not. We were just being ourselves, and NFL Films just did a massive job of just capturing that. And I thought it was the most compelling TV that that um you know that they put on as far as Hard Knocks is concerned. Yep, and I consider that Hard Knocks to be the best one yet. From all the Hard Knocks NFL Films has made, the one with the Jets in 2020 is hands down the best for me, and it's funny when you look back at that team now, you're at ESPN, Rex Ryan is at ESPN, Mike Tannenbaum is at ESPN, Mark Sanchez is at ESPN, I think Bart Scott is also at ESPN for ESPN New York, so it's just funny to see so many former Jets now working at ESPN. I want to ask a general question here, because I've always wondered this, as an offensive lineman, is it annoying for you guys to be so underappreciated by the public, because all I hear from other players is that offensive linemen have the best personalities in the locker room, and the only attention you guys get is when there's a penalty or you guys allow a sack. Is that annoying? <laughs> well, we we understand that that's part of the that's part of the job. Um, 
everybody wants to know, everybody talks about the quarterbacks or, the, you know, the, the other deeper positions, but we just go about doing our jobs because if, if the other positions are shining, guess what? We're doing our jobs. We're doing our jobs well. So um, we, don't, we don't care about all the accolades. That's just not in our DNA. It's not our personality. And I always felt like we were the smartest people on the field anyway. So if you, want, if you truly want a great perspective, ask the offensive lineman. Offensive linemen truly give you the best perspective of anything on the football, on the football field. And there you go. Now you're at ESPN giving your perspective about football. So you end up retiring in 20, 2011, and you immediately got that gig with ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports. How did that happen so fast? And what was it like making that transition? Because it was, it was basically retirement ESPN. Like, how did that happen? Yeah, so I had been doing media while I was, while I was playing. I, you know, I was doing, like, I was doing Sirius XM. I was doing SNY. Um, so – and then, and then, like, my last year, I started doing some things at ESPN. And so um, my last game, I tore my Achilles. Yeah. And I pretty much knew, like, okay, that I'm done because that's a hard injury to come back from year 12 of my career. And, um, and I just remember Seth Markman, you know, give me a call and was like, hey, um, it, you know, we have a spot ready for you, if, if, you know, if you decide to retire. And I just, I just asked, I'm like, can you give me, like, a month you know, give me like a month to kind of see if I'm really, you know, really ready to retire. And he was like, take as much time as you need. And um, I just did like a month of rehab. And I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. It's time for me to transition. And that's exactly what I did right into uh, right to ESPN. So what's it really been like doing TV? I know you did it for that one year while playing, but what's it been like going from playing to doing TV and now doing it for almost 10 years? You know, it's great. You know, a lot of people have the perception that if you play football, you should, you know, it it doesn't work that it it really isn't the case. Um, There's been a lot of really like topping guys who just crash and burn in TV. You really have to work at it. It's 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 an art to being on TV. Obviously, you have to study the game. You got to know what you're doing. It's not like being a player. You know, when you're a player, you're concerned about like the division you're playing, the, the guys you you play against like the, the next week when you're an analyst, you have to know everything that's going on around the league. You got to know what's going on, what the trends are, you know, tendencies, all these different things. And that only comes through preparation. So that's why you see certain guys flame out and certain guys really, really rise because they put in the work. Right. And as I said before, you have been doing it for a long time. Now you're on various shows on ESPN talking football, I always find it funny when you're on first take with Stephen A. I think you guys are hilarious. It is always funny. Yes, they are. So so that is great. I do want to wrap this up now with a quick five. I do this with most of my guests. It is five questions. Try to keep it short. If you want to expand on anything, go for it. Number one, are people wrong for counting out Bill Belichick and the Patriots in 2020? They are. They are. Bill Belichick is... Again, like I said, the greatest head coach in any team sport. Um, he's going to have those guys coached up. They got a really good defense. Um, don't count out the Patriots. All right, number two. I put out a tweet last week and asked this question to last week's guest as well, Cameron Wolf. It is my five most underappreciated players in the NFL. I had Chandler Jones, Levante David, Ryan Ramchek, Keenan Allen, and Tredavious White. You have anyone who should be added to that list? Someone who doesn't get the attention he deserves? Ooh, wow! 
I tend to go with guys guys who play positions that aren't glamorous, you know, uh, fullbacks and 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 uh, offense alignment, you know, defense alignment who do the dirty work. Um, I would probably say kind of put you um, on the spot. Yeah, um, that's okay. I'm gonna go with um, Quentin Nelson. I think Quentin Nelson, man, mm-hmm. is he's an all pro. He's one of the best linemen in the league. But he, I mean, obviously, you don't talk about Quentin Nelson as like one of the you know flashiest players. But that guy literally sets the tone for the whole organization. The whole organization. If there's a face to the Indianapolis Colts, it's Quentin Nelson. So give me him. Yeah, Quentin Nelson, one of the best guards in all of football. He was an all-pro as a rookie, which is just insane. And the Colts were the only team in the NFL last year that started all five of their offensive linemen in every single game. And all five are returning this year. Quentin Nelson is a big part of that. And he deserves a lot of credit for what he's done since entering the NFL. Number three, I know you're a big basketball guy. It sounds like the NBA is coming back. Who do you have winning it all? Of course, my Lakers, man. Your Lakers, my, right? I'm going, I'm going with my Lakers. I think because when you've had a layoff like like you know the NBA has, what it what, what you're going to find out is who are really pros. Who are the pros? Who are the guys in that long layoff made sure they stayed in shape? Who did the little things? And I think there's no better leader in the NBA than LeBron James. I think LeBron James is a pro, um, keeping himself in shape. And I think the Lakers are, you know, they were playing at the high, probably the highest level of any team in the league before the break. And I'm, and I'm going with the Lakers. I would probably agree with you. I am curious to see, though, what the Clippers can do, because I think that is a serious threat. Um, number four, back to the AFC East. I know it's early, but can we get a prediction for who wins the AFC East in 2020? Uh, if I had to say right now, I would probably say Buffalo. Um, I like what I like what what Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott are doing up there in Buffalo. Seem like they got a, a culture that's that those guys are accountable. They they're playing as a team. They surrounded the young quarterback with more weapons. Um, the defense is one of the best in the league. So if I had to, you know, make a wager right now, I would probably have to put it on Buffalo. Yep, you're not the only one with Buffalo. I mean, I can't even imagine the fans over there if they do win the division. That place would be going crazy. Last one here. I want to go back to where we started with all this. I have a lot of young listeners on this podcast. I want you to give some advice to the younger generation of what they could do to help out with racial injustice in this world. Well, I think the biggest thing is, listen, 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 number one. Listen, talk, and open your eyes and your hearts. Because I've always said, if we, you know, everyone talks about big structural change, but actually real change comes within yourself, at home, and in your community. So if you really want to affect change, you can affect change right in your, in your inner circle, right in your community. That's where it starts at. 100%. The one thing that everyone keeps on saying, just keep on listening to what we're saying, keep on learning. And um, society will become better. I mean, I told this to um, our guest last week, Cameron Wolf. There's times to speak. There are times to where we should listen. And when we listen, we learn. And we're all listening right now. And hopefully everyone else does as well. Damien, I really appreciate the time. I appreciate the insight and honesty. Stay safe. And we are going to keep in touch. Same here. Thanks for having me on. 
Special thanks there to ESPN's Damien Woody for joining me on this week's podcast. The one thing I really like about Damien is that he tells it to you how it is, and that was just a really good conversation with him. Make sure to give him a follow on Twitter and on Instagram. It is at Damien Woody, D-A-M-I-E-N-W-O-O-D-Y. That wraps up this week's My Sports Update football podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. It is all greatly appreciated. If you have any questions, any tips, you want to suggest a guest or whatever it is, Leave it in the reviews and I'll go check it out. I am your host, Ari Marov. I'll be back with another episode next week with another special guest. Until then, so long and I'll talk to you all next week. Hey there, my name is Ricky Smith and I'm the founder of Random Acts of Kindness Everywhere, a nonprofit that simply does exactly what it says, promote kindness everywhere. We know the world is crazy right now. If you are searching for a podcast that has a deeper conversation about race, my co-host Angel Gray and I will be discussing everything going on right now on our podcast, Random Acts of Podcast on Blue Wire Podcast Network. To find out more, go to rakenow.org.